Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, we do come before you as your people, longing for a word from you. Lord, we do call upon you that you might speak to us, that we might be conformed into the image of Christ, that we might grow up in every way in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The great 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, called the book of Numbers, Moses' Pilgrim's Progress. And if you know anything about Charles Spurgeon, he loved Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. He read it over a hundred times in his lifetime. And the reason why he finds so many comparisons between the book of Numbers and the Pilgrim's Progress is because it's in the book of Numbers that we find a full account of this pilgrim people, the ancient nation of Israel, as they're traveling out of the city of destruction from Egypt into that celestial promised land. And so they faced all of these different experiences along the way. They faced the slew of despond, the hill of great difficulty. And now, even in this text, they find themselves at Doubter's Castle. And that's what we want to look at this evening as the people of God find themselves in a rough position. They find themselves doubting the very nature and goodness of God. And so it's no wonder why the New Testament picks up on this wilderness wandering period and uses this as a paradigm for the Christian life. Peter calls us sojourners. Paul speaks about this very text in 1 Corinthians 10, and he even uses it as a warning that we don't fall into the same sin as ancient Israel and put the Lord Jesus to the test. And so we want to see that warning this evening, but we also want to see the very clear picture of the gospel that is represented to us. Christ lifted up. Was he to die in the stead of sinners? And that's what we'll look at this evening. We'll look at first the complaint, second the mediation, and then thirdly and finally, the salvation. A few weeks ago, I was on a flight back to DFW, and as we were beginning to take off on the runway, the engine stopped immediately, came to a halt, and there was a few gasps in the, 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 the cabin by some of the passengers, and the captain of the airplane told us that there would be just a 30-minute delay that we were going to go back to uh, port at the airport, and it would simply just go away quickly. And so that 30 minutes turned into an hour, and that hour turned into two hours, and that two hours turned into a four-hour delay. And so by the time we finally took off, we were nearing Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and there was a great storm over the airport, and so we had another delay, and we had to go around in a circle again and again for about an hour before we arrived. And you could predict the responses of the passengers, the complaints, the grumbling, people being upset left and right, 
wondering if we were ever going to make it. And that's really what we have here going on with the people of Israel as they are heading to the promised land. They are going in what seems to be a big circle. Look at verse 4. From Mount Hor they sent out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. If you were to go home later this evening and just simply look at a map of Israel's wilderness wanderings, you would find at this point they really do go in a big circle. It's in the previous chapter that we see that they cannot pass through Edom. And so they have to go back down to the Red Sea. And for those ancient people of Israel, this really did seem like the Lord was taking them straight back to Egypt. And so it says that they became impatient on the way or impatient because of the way. And so you can imagine the complaints You can imagine even the tempter behind their doubts. Why would God bring us out of Egypt just to send us straight back? If he's promised us such a great inheritance, why is he treating us like homeless sojourners? Well, it's here that these doubts, these complaints, this impatience actually turns into something far more heinous as you see there in verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Minor impatience turns into outright rebellion against the Lord rather than submitting themselves to the Lord and calling out for mercy, saying that they are wearied by the journey. No, they they turn to accusation. They call the very character of the Lord into question. Why would you take us out of Egypt just to let us die in the wilderness? Clearly, you don't care for us, Lord. Moses is the worst tour guide in human history. And so they have these complaints. Their impatience turns into all out rebellion against not only the Lord, but for his ambassador, Moses. And I think there's something important for us to learn about impatience here. What can often be taken as a little complaint, a little grumble here and there about our lot in life, not going the way that we want it to, it can actually turn out to be full out rebellion, rejection of the Lord's kind, caring providence. See, the people of Israel, they have so quickly forgotten that the Lord delivered them out of Egypt, that he had rescued them with all of these signs and wonders and miracles, and that he had promised and set before them a land flowing with milk and honey, and yet they have forgotten. They have forgotten his redemption, his care, his sovereign plan and guidance. And so they have thrusted that to the side. They have taken up bitterness and complaints against the Lord. And even that bread, that food, that worthless food that they so despise was to be to them a constant reminder of the Lord's faithfulness and caring for them. Yet they have turned completely over to bitterness. And we can do that too in the Christian life. And Paul warns us against that, to not put the Lord Jesus Christ to the test. Because if we forget if we fail to remember 
that the Lord is our sovereign God, who is a loving Father, who is watching over all of the affairs of our life and directing it towards the end of which he designed. If we forget that, we will turn towards bitterness. And it's always important to remember, of course, that what seems so crooked to us, the difficulties, the suffering, the sorrows, the pains that we have in life, what seems so crooked on the path, it's always straight to the Lord. It's always exactly what he intends for us. And so let us remember this truth. And so we see the complaint, but then we also see the judgment that comes out of this complaint in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And here the Lord is disciplining his people. They have rejected his authority. And in a sense, they are saying, you know what? It was actually better for us back in Egypt because at least we wouldn't have died there. Here, the Lord has brought us just to die in the wilderness. And so the Lord is responding in kind by saying, okay, you want Egypt? Well, here's a taste of Egypt. And he sends down these fiery serpents. And we might remember from the story of the Exodus how it's Pharaoh who is kind of the representative or has a serpent represent his kingdom, his majesty. He even has a, a serpent that's enshrined around his head, representing his power over his kingdom and empire. And so here Israel's getting a little taste, a little reminder of what it was like to be back in Egypt. And they're being disciplined by these serpents being sent among them. Their lives are now becoming far more uncomfortable than Originally, it had been. And so we find that the Lord does not turn a blind eye to their rebellion and rejection of him, but he disciplines them. He tries to wake them up from their sin. It's that time of the year when the college football season has begun. And many of you, I'm sure, are paying close attention to many of the games that go on throughout the season. And it's always an interesting thing when you find a team get upset by an unranked team. For instance, last night, Utah was beat by Florida, who was not even ranked in the top 25. And these kinds of games can often function as a wake-up call to a good team. They may, be, they may have all of the skill on their team. They may have the best coaches, yet if they're not executing, if they're not implementing the game plan perfectly, uh, they might be asleep at the switch and lose. And so sometimes they have a game that wakes them up to their slumber. And that's precisely what we find here with these serpents that the Lord uses. He sends down upon the people of Israel. He's trying to wake them up from their spiritual slumber. He's trying to use a megaphone to rouse them from their spiritual slumber. And that's precisely what happens in verse 7 as we see the mediation take place. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. This is actually a tremendous example of repentance here represented in verse 7. What does Israel say in response to these serpents? We have sinned. And yet they don't just leave it there. They get specific with their sin. What do they say? For we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Exactly how scripture records it in verse 5. They're specific with their repentance. 
And I think that's something that we ought to learn and apply in our own lives. That the Lord is not content with a general repentance where we simply say, yes, Lord, we're not perfect. Yes, Lord, we have sinned. No, he wants us to repent of specific sins in a specific manner. And that's what Israel is doing here. No man is backing off saying, you know what? We shouldn't have expressed how we felt that way. They don't get vague about their sin and saying, you know what? We made a mistake here along the way. You know, Moses, can you just pray to the Lord that he would take care of this problem that we have here? No, they say, we have sinned. They're sorrowful. They know what they have done. They're sincere with their repentance. And then even their specific. They name it exactly as scripture records it. And I hope this is the repentance that marks your continual life of repentance. That you don't go to God with vague or general terms of repentance, but you get specific. Psalm 51 kind of repentance where we cry out to the Lord saying, against you and you only have we sinned, Lord. There are no excuses here. We repent. We turn away from our sins. But also notice that they don't go directly to the Lord. They go to Moses with this prayer request. They say to Moses, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And we saw this last week, that Moses so often functioned as a mediator between God and his people. That the people were far too sinful to approach the Lord on their own. And so they had to go through God's appointed mediator to bring their requests to the Lord. And that's what they're doing here. They are going through Moses to the Lord. And of course, that is to point us to the New Testament and the book of Hebrews, how Jesus Christ is our mediator. He is the only mediator between God and man. For it's in Christ that we find God represented to us perfectly, for he is God himself. And Christ himself, as our great high priest, represents us perfectly before the Lord. And so here, just in a few verses, we have encouragement. Because here we find that we can be specific with our sins, and we can go to a mediator. And so that is our ultimate hope when it comes to repentance. And so we find the mediation, and then finally, we see the Lord's salvation in verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So what's going on here? If you remember, the people had prayed, had asked Moses to pray that the Lord would take away the serpents, to get them outside of their camp, to remove them from inflicting pain on them. And yet the Lord instructs Moses, take one of those serpents or take the likeness of one of those serpents, raise it up on a pole. And there, by looking upon that pole, everyone who looks on it will have life. They will be saved from the penalty of these serpents. So what's going on here? Well, it's clear that the Lord is saying to the people of Israel, you have to look unto me for salvation. There is no other place to look. There is no homeopathic remedy for the serpent's bite. You must look to my salvation. You must look to that serpent on a pole 
and see that you might have life. And then, of course, the Lord is introducing in this story that gospel type, that picture, that shadow of that which was to come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because it's by looking to the Lord that we find salvation. And so it's no wonder why in John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up so that by believing in him, you might have eternal life. And so here we have a picture, a foretaste, a shadow of the gospel with the serpent. And it's ultimately pointing to that lifting up of Christ on the cursed cross of Calvary, where he takes upon himself the venom of sin upon his own body as it even promises in Genesis 3.15 that the, the serpent will bite his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And so there is this drama that is going on that Moses is seeing in his own day that's ultimately pointing to that ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ where he is lifted up, raised up on a cross and endures the likeness of sinful human flesh, the wrath that we deserve. But more so, he's even raised up on the third day that we might look upon him and have eternal life. So this truly is an Old Testament gospel story. It was January of 1850 that a young man walked into Primitive Methodist Chapel in England. He was seeking shelter from a blizzard. And there was a substitute, an unknown lay preacher in the chapel that day. He wasn't the ordinary preacher. And he got up to preach Isaiah 45 22, which simply says, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved, for I am God and there is none other. And this preacher, who had obviously not much experience, bumbled through his sermon. He repeated the text several times. He contradicted himself probably a few times. And by all modern accounts, he would not have gotten a good grade in homiletics at seminary. Uh, But towards the end of his sermon, he looked at that young man, a young Charles Spurgeon, and said this to him, young man, you look very miserable, and you will be miserable in this life and in the life to come if you do not obey my text. But young man, if you look to Jesus Christ, you will be saved And it was in that moment that Charles Spurgeon heard the gospel proclaimed to him. That his eyes needed to get off himself and get up to Christ in all of his glory. And he said that it was as though all of the clouds of darkness had rolled away and the sun had risen. And I could sing with all of the angels of heaven the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the essence of preaching is calling men and women everywhere to look to Jesus Christ, to look and to live. It's the essence of the Christian life, to look at Jesus Christ and live. That's our call as Christians. And so as we begin to close, I just want to highlight three things from this text. 
that it teaches us for the Christian life. First, looking to Christ is the essence of saving faith. It doesn't take much to look. It's simply a glance that saves us by looking at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself connects looking with believing. It's the simple faith, the simple reception of Jesus Christ and all of his promises that gets us secure in him. And this is so important because we can often feel like we must clean ourselves up, that we might try to be better, that we can present ourselves before the Lord. But the salvation that we see in Numbers 21 and the salvation that we see in John chapter 3 is the same. It's simply looking. It doesn't take much. And so if you're in here this evening and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I call you this evening to look. There's nothing that holds you back. Christ is for you. Christ will save you. So looking to Christ is the essence of saving faith. And secondly, looking to Christ is the entrance into holy joy. Could you imagine on this day in Numbers 21, what it would have been like for them to see some of their relatives die, them to be in great pain, and yet to look upon that bronze serpent that had been lifted up in the wilderness and all of that pain, all of that guilt, all of that shame removed in an instance. Could you imagine the joy that filled their hearts? Well, friends, that was a type. That was a type of that which is to come. We have the fullness of Jesus Christ, the one who came to give us abundant life. And so sometimes it requires that we get our eyes off ourselves and look up to him, the one who has provided us all of heaven's blessings. So looking to Jesus is the entrance into holy joy. And then finally, looking to Jesus is the enduring hope of the Christian. It's necessary that we recalibrate our gaze in the Christian life. Someone who looks to the world will be a worldly man or woman, but one who looks to Christ will become Christ-like. And this is our hope. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we look in hope because we know that even though we see him by faith now, we will one day see him face to face. This looking won't be by faith one day. Our looking will be the kind of looking that refreshes us day after day in eternity. And so this is the core of the Christian faith. This is the core of the Christian life. Because looking to Jesus is our hope. It's our life. And if we look to him, we will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have raised up the Lord Jesus Christ on on high. Lord, we thank you that you have called him into heaven where he reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes upon him, that we might look upon him and live. And we pray this in his name. Amen.